all good things must come to an end. And on this episode of IT Visionaries, after more than 200 episodes, countless conversations, and numerous trips to the top of the Apple charts, Ian Faison is stepping down as host of the show and passing the baton to Albert Chow. On this episode, Albert joins Ian to give some background on who he is and his background in tech and entrepreneurship. And then the two chat about the evolution of the show during its first two years and the trends in the IT industry that are setting the stage for the future. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries for the last time. And today I am joined by very special guest and our new host, my good buddy, good friend, Albert. How are you? Ian. It's a bittersweet thing. I feel guilty almost, but uh, I appreciate the, the warm intro. Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm super excited for our listeners, for you and, uh, and all of our guests that uh, we're going to be in capable hands. So today's episode will be a little different than our normal IT Visionaries episodes. I am uh, officially stepping down as, uh, as host of the show. Albert has taken over. And so we wanted to take now, the next few minutes to go through some of the lessons learned uh, from my time at IT Visionaries and talk about you know Albert's background and uh, and some of the cool stuff that you all have in the works for the upcoming uh, episodes and, and months ahead for IT Visionaries. So before we get into all of that, Albert, how did you get started in technology? Uh, yeah, so my story with technology is actually it was the only kind of organization that would hire me. Uh, so. I think my story is a lot similar, very similar to a lot of people that end up in this field, which is that I didn't really do that well in college. And so <laughs> like I did really bad in college, uh, barely had like a 3.0 grade point average. I had to take how things work, pass fail. I had to petition the registrar for the easiest class at my university, University of Virginia, I had to take something pass fail just to, just to get by. But when I finally started getting my act together and said, hey, okay, I need to enter an actual job, make actual money. There was like, it was just very difficult. My resume didn't have anything substantial in it. But what was interesting was the tech boom was just starting to happen, I would say. This is like 2004, 2005 time period. And what I started finding out was that people in the tech industries that were building technology startups outside of San Francisco, Silicon Valley, they didn't really have a lot of options for workers. So when it came to like account management and stuff like that, they would hire people with just about zero experience, but willing to take a low wage. and that's how I really got my start. There was a tech consulting firm called Synaptis, which built e-learning products for Oracle applications, PeopleSoft, big ERP systems. And they had a job opening out there. And I was like, all right, I think I can do this. And I remember walking in day one and telling them, I have no clue how to do any of these things. And they were like, that's fine. You can figure, probably figure it out along the way. And I was like, yeah, that's what I think too. So that's literally how I got my start in tech. It was the only kind of organization that would hire me, even though I had no skills. Okay, so flash forward to today. Tell me about what you're working on. So today, you know, I started working at Mission, working uh, just to handle the business side. So luckily, after Synaptis, I got a career in technology, right? And so as the company grew, we actually 
had a really unique event. So part of this happened right around 2008. I mean, it wasn't unique. It happened to everybody. So 2008 comes and that's the housing crisis. All these companies are going out of business. Our company was really at the same point, inflection point. And that's when my boss turned to me and said, hey, listen, basically, if we don't figure out a way to save this company, I'm just going to walk on it. Because we were a services business. He had over a million dollars of cash in the bank. His only costs were payroll. So, I mean, he literally could have cut the entire staff, walked off with a million dollars, just said, there we go. And so we were given this opportunity like, to either save the company, figure something out, or it goes away and your job goes away too. So that was pretty awesome. I was uh, 28 years old at the time. So me and one of my colleagues who has been on IT Visionaries as well, shout out Jordan Collard, uh, CEO of Joel AG, uh, but <laughs> we basically built a plan to figure out a way to do this. And so we started focusing on this, how do we sell it? How do we market our services? How do we support which technology stacks to support? We were really in depth with other sales reps and we found out that sales reps knew all the answers to everything, right? So we would connect with sales reps at Oracle. We would ask them who was selling what services to which customers. We would offer you know, finders fees, reimbursements, kickback. Well, you could call it whatever you want, but we figured out a way to get introduced to all these accounts. And we started focusing our offerings on training. So that was UP. So we started selling UPK training at a really high rate. Uh, UPK was the product Oracle had at the time that supported Oracle products. So as the company grew, we took it out of recession from zero to like 4 million or whatever the number was. And I remember asking my boss, like, hey, listen, can I have equity in this business? And he said no, uh, which was not a shocker, but you know, also a bummer. At the same time, I'd always built small businesses on the side. One of the things I'd done on the side was I started a dog toy company called Dog Nasty. <laughs> and my designer, who I met on Craigslist, was just so happened working independently at a new tech startup called Expion. Now he calls me and he says, Hey, we're looking to hire more people in training. And uh, you know, he knew I was already teaching other people how to use Oracle products. So then I got involved in at Expion, which was a social media technology startup. So same story repeated itself again. I remember sitting down in my interview. My boss looks at me, or future boss says, what do you know about social media? And I said, I don't know anything about it, but I think I can learn it. And so we started again, same cycle repeats itself, learn social media, marketing software, Facebook pages had just been introduced. So this is like 2010 now, 2008 pages were introduced. And we built that company, which would then grow from zero to 10 million annualized revenue. It got acquired by another tech company called Sysmos. Now in this time is when I actually met Chad and Steph. So I kind of knew who they were. This was back when Mission was not Mission, it was called Life Learning. It was just a blog. And I joke with Steph and Chad all the time about this, but I remember when I asked uh, Chad, like, what is this blog? It's a, and he said, A, we, it's life learning or life lessons and it teaches people about life. And I said, <laughs> I just said to him, like, why would anyone want to hear about life from you? <laughs> and that's how our relationship got started with him. So along the way, I was building tech companies and did it over a couple of times. And then at the same time, just knew, knowing Chad and Steph for a long time, I saw mission growing as well. And so I was working at a tech infrastructure company, IT infrastructure, networking as a service, definitely out of my element. It was really boring to sell and learn about it. Um, I saw mission was becoming more exciting. I was actually suggesting guests for people to join it. So that's how I ended up at mission. Uh, so while I was always in tech and I built a couple applications on my own, uh, joining mission is that was my most recent thing. I jumped on board there and uh, it's, been, it's been a fun ride. In fact, I met you, Ian, when, if you recall, you pr I hope you recall, uh, I was out pitching a tech. We won. We actually won. Shoot. What is that called? I think it's called Plug and Play. It's in San Jose. Yeah. Yeah. Plug and Play. Sure. Uh, we won the Plug and Play contest when I was 
a VP of sales at Ad Shoppers. We won that contest. And that's when I met you guys because I, I came over from Sunnyvale and I was like, what are you guys up to? He's like, we're starting a podcast company. I was like, no, oh, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and, uh, and it's crazy to get to know you over the years and, uh, you know, and for you to be involved kind of in behind the scenes on a bunch of our shows and obviously behind the scenes on IT Visionaries, but never kind of like at the forefront of uh, not behind the mic, as they say. And so it's super exciting to have you now kind of in front of the mic. You've, you've hosted a bunch of, uh, of other podcasts and episodes you know, across the network, done a bunch of different interviews. Obviously, you have huge enthusiasm for technology and all things uh, IT and visionary. Um, <laughs> it's one of the things that I think, you know, in getting to know you over the past few years, you're extremely curious about technology and trends and how things are... Um, about how things are are going to change so quickly now, especially you know things are changing more and more. And then also you have the operational side where you know you've been an operator, you've seen you know business technology at play uh, at companies. I'm curious, what makes you so excited to uh, to host the show? So it's both exciting and nerve wracking, right? So it's one one thing I'm excited about is always learning about what other people see as the future. One of the things I think that's you it's not unique to me. In fact. Bezos is probably the most vocal about it is he talks about what's not going to change over a 10 year span. He talks, he always, he talks about it relentlessly about like, he always looks at things as what's not going to change because he tries to make bets in those things that aren't going to change because you'll have a longer customer base. And I think what's interesting about meeting other people in the tech space is they're constantly bombarded by new ideas. And I've definitely started and maybe because I'm older, right? Like I'm 40. So maybe I'm a cynic or maybe I'm a pessimist. But I feel like I've been around tech enough to know that not everything works as it's promised to do. And so when I think about some of the people that have been on the show, some of the things that they've been exposed to, some of the things they've tried for themselves, I mean, they probably have a huge, a huge list of things that actually don't work as promised. That's one of the things I look forward to is like discovering what they've found out that doesn't work. Because I think that's important to know what doesn't work so that you can double down and actually pay attention to what does work. And it's going to be fascinating hearing that sign because I think that's, for me, that's an interesting perspective I hope to bring to the show, which is, you know, there's a lot, there's so many empty promises, I think, in tech, especially. And so I think not to make it a pessimist show, but just kind of getting people closer to like, how would you operate towards success? How are you going to get towards success? What are the technologies that you should invest in to get towards success? Whatever that successful story is. And also knowing what doesn't work. I know people won't call out vendors by name. Uh, that's fine. But I think knowing that a company invested, I should actually call this vendor out. Should I call him out? I'm gonna call him out. There was a company, I'll give you a great example. <laughs> we had a company, this was pre-Zoom. So we had, well, I guess Zoom was around, but it wasn't that big. WebEx was our primary software stack for web conferencing. And there was a plugin that promised to lower the bills. If you don't know, WebEx used to bill by who dialed in. So if you dialed in via phone, it costs nothing. But if a person dialed in via their phone to your web conference, they would bill you, the web conference holder, for a line. So it got quite expensive. And this company came and said, we can actually sit on top of WebEx and basically lower your bills. Fair enough. Our company tried it. I mean, it was the biggest disaster ever. It sucked. So, <laughs> so I mean, it was a disaster, colossal disaster. I've never seen a contract get pulled so fast. And I've never seen a company so quick to be ready to like do whatever it took to get out of their contract immediately like we did. But the road to success is often filled with a lot of these missteps. So 
to me, I think it's important to know what these missteps are because, you know, I don't want to make them again. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've spent, gosh, yeah, I think this is a episode like 243, although not all of them saw the light of day. We have a lot of them saw the light of day, yeah. but uh, maybe, you know, one or two didn't. Um, but we've done, you know, somewhere in the realm of uh, 250 interviews for this show over the past um, over the past two years. And, uh, you know, we've seen all sorts of operators um, from, you know, the CIO and IT world. We've seen all sorts of vendors. We've seen, you know, technologists and people that are creating technology that are very close to the product. We've seen people that are more in the, you know, quote unquote, back office. And I kind of wanted to just talk through a couple of the lessons learned that we've seen over the past two years from our guests and kind of just get an idea of where this is going. And we'll tease out, you know, obviously there's a ton of really cool guests that Albert, you're going to be interviewing uh, over the coming months. And so we'll, we'll get into that as well. But so I, I wanted to talk like lessons learned here. So early in the show, we saw a shift. And that shift was around this idea of employee experience. And um, if you believe that, you know, um, you know, there's there's two parts of a company that there's making products and, and selling products. Yep. Then, you know, you could say that there's two layers within that. And you could say that those layers are employee experience and customer experience that you have a layer of all of the talent in your company that allows you to sell and make products. And then you have uh, the experience that your customers have. We've talked about both at, at length here on the show with literally hundreds of guests. But I think what's really interesting is this position where this head of technology role, whether it's a CIO or a CTO or CDO or whatever it is, it could be a chief product officer, chief architect, whatever. It's this head of technology role that is responsible for the employee experience of your company. And that specifically now with COVID the last nine months, every company has realized that they need to have a seamless digital experience within their employees. And that this position is by and large at a lot of companies up for grabs. Because there's nobody who really owns it. There's no such thing as a chief employee experience officer. It doesn't really happen. So a lot of the times that fell to a lot of different people. Maybe it fell on the CEO as the person who's you know, in charge of everything. But there wasn't kind of that pin the rose moment. And kind of what we've seen over the past two years is the role of the CIO or this head of technology leader, the visionary leader, that has taken that and ran with it and understands and has data about what their employees do, where their employees go, how they leverage technology, how they can better serve their jobs uh, or do their jobs, how they can better serve their customers, and how all of that work fits into a seamless customer experience. And it's something that I think is every day more and more the ticket-taking responsibilities, the back office, quote-unquote, stuff, that we see, saw you know, conversations at the beginning of the show, a little bit more of that, now have really transformed. And the best heads of technologies are owning that employee experience. You know, what's interesting when you notice that is, I think that's not actually how, there's no question that's what's happening, but I think there was another lever happening that created this responsibility. The biggest lever I think that I saw in the last, or we've seen in the last few years, is how 
B2B software sold. It is sold at the practitioner and user's level. Even though it might be signed for by like that leader, it was basically sold. You got to get the users on board. I remember when we were in SaaS companies, we would do proof of concepts. I mean, literally decision maker wasn't really that involved. Once we got to, let's say you're worth trying out, we had to impress all the users around the world that were going to be using the product. And to your point, right? Because now the CIO is saying like, or whoever's in charge of this purchasing decision is now saying, yes, I need my employees to not only, and I, it needs to be able to do the job. Like my vetting process is, can it do the job? But it also needs to be something I want to use. And then my, it needs to be something my employees, my team members need to want to use and they need to use it effectively. So there was this dynamic happening that caused this shift of responsibility. I think it made sense that the technology leader ultimately became in charge of the purchase because, or the decision, because they were most likely to vet if it could actually functionally do the job. It also had to functionally figure out if they had to plug into different tech stacks, which you now see more than ever, right? Different technologies have open API communication protocol that can absolutely communicate back and forth, moving data and information between products. So they had to have someone that does it. And so like, that's where you're seeing like this roll up to them. I think that is not going to stop. That momentum is not going to stop because as long as the pressure is there from, let's say, venture capitalists to convince software founders to figure out different ways into organizations, it's, I think, the groundswell momentum, which you see that Slack, Box, Dropbox have created, is going to keep coming. There are a couple tools that will be sold still primarily to the top down. So, like, I think Okta is like a great example of some of the customers we've had in the past where. You're talking about an employee login tool, right? So someone at the top has to make sure it fits all the systems first. And usually that decision is just made and then like everyone has to like take it on. So it's really, that's the lever I think that's really accelerated that moment, which is how products are now sold, right? Because it probably got to a point I'm imagining for different, I'll just use my experience from social media management software. It got to the point where CEOs would look at their tech stack and be like, what is this? You got Sprinkler, you got XBN, you got Meltwater, you got Sysmos, you got like, you might have as a company, you might have a contract with all of them. So whose job was it to rein that in, right? And so like they were trying to stop the proliferation of SaaS inside of their companies. And so they had to give the assignment to somebody. That person, how are they going to judge it? It was about employee experience. It had to be like, do the employees want to use it? So I think that momentum is going to continue. And like the job, like you mentioned, let's say whoever the tech leader is, if whoever has that responsibility, it's going to be driven by the employees. That is a fundamental change, I think, to how tech was ever bought, right? It's going to be driven by the employees because it's now really hard. Like you would be hard pressed, I think, to sell to a CIO or CTO, some technology stack that's going to be used by the employees where they don't try to proof of concept it will cross all of them to see what they, that they actually enjoy using it. Because no one wants to be the person that installs the product that not only, let's say, doesn't do the job, but even if it does do the job, but everyone hates it and, and is frustrated and or causes other problems in other workflow, no one wants to be the guy no one, or the gal. No one wants to be that person, right? That's like death. <laughs> yeah, I would say another key takeaway that we've seen, and this is more of a COVID-specific one, but I think that this this is now emblematic, was the first year and a half of the show, we talked to a lot of leaders who are trying to figure out how to accelerate their digital transformation, their digital agenda. They're trying to figure out how to get things paid for. They're trying to figure out how to deal with the myriad of technologies that their business partners would bring them. And that the business partners would say, hey, can you just approve this? So you have this relationship between 
the CIO or the technology leader and the business partner that, you know, a year and a half ago was very much driven by, hey, can you approve this? Can you look into this? Can you just make a way to make this work? We want to buy this. And what happened with COVID was the senior leadership team, the board, the CEO, all now have an acute awareness of the pains that go into the aforementioned employee experience. Because now every one of them feels like an employee in the middle of, you know, a work from home employee. So they acutely feel all of the pains that, you know, a normal quote unquote employee that was working from home back in the day would have felt or somebody like that. And what that means is it was this jumpstart to a digital transformation. It was a jumpstart to accelerate the digital agenda that had been necessary for a long time. And what happened was it now was no longer seen as a, oh, this is a nice to have. This differentiates our company uh, and makes it a better place to work. And maybe we see some ROI from that to a non-negotiable, we absolutely have to have this type of experience, this, this employee experience that is digital first. And now those business partners and those different people are going to the, to the CIO asking for advice rather than saying like, oh, just get this thing. And I think that that's a fundamental change in how this role is evolving. Because if you're the head of employee experience for a company, as the person who's the head of technology, um, we've always said that you, you have two folks in the, in the company who see everybody, right? You have the CFO because they see where all the money goes. And then you have the CIO who sees where all the technology goes. And you can't have a company with, without technology anymore. And so when you kind of get that quote unquote seat at the table, you're kind of thrust into the seat at the table. There's a little bit more scrutiny on what you're doing, but it now like having a very strong technical and technological footprint for your company is the new standard. And that is never going to go away. There is no, you cannot go backwards from that. And I think it's just a fundamental shift of how we view companies uh, now is like, there is no more, you know, kind of digital transformation. It's like, you're either going to arrive here very soon, or you're absolutely going to be left behind. And that's what we were saying a number of years ago, but it wasn't necessarily the case. Now it's like, absolutely, you can't even work unless you have that. Well, I mean, it's also going to be reflected in the actual P&Ls of businesses, right? Because if everyone's a remote workforce, right? And you think about, we talked about sell, make, right? If we're on the make side, well, we, everyone knows the faster you make something, the more money you generate for the business, right? The faster you resolve support tickets, the faster you ship products, the faster you can resolve issues. Everything's based upon speed, efficiency. We've all been there as on the consumer side, right? Our tolerance for waiting is is basically non-existent anymore, right? I mean, even like, for example, let's use those phone systems. I think everyone's called the support line, right? That's a miserable experience. Businesses are going to see in their P&L that if they do not have the press one to receive a callback, I can only assume people become more frustrated with that business than one that does, right? Like now, now the way, if you think about like our own personal behavior, if I encounter a business that doesn't have that press one to callback, 
the likelihood I stay on the line, unless it's absolutely mission critical, is almost zero. Like I'm bouncing. You know, I'm going to try to look for resolve my situation on my own, or I'm going to maybe go to a competitor product. And that's what's going to happen as these tools proliferate, as more tools proliferate to support remote workforce or infrastructure expands to support remote workforce for the companies that want to build their own in house tools. They're going to start seeing how slow or how fast they can get back to customers. So the employee experience is the customer experience, arguably, right? I think. Richard Branson always talks about that at Virgin. If you take care of your employees, they take care of your customers. So it's going to be in reverse. They're going to start seeing the PL. Like, why are our, let's say, cases rising? Why are our, you know, orders shipped falling? They're going to follow these paths, right? There's like tools like uh, that can do modern business process automation or they can do business process monitoring, mining. I think that's what they call it, BPM. They're going to go use these tools to figure out where all the breaks are, and that's going to cause vendor replacements very fast. I, I think that's going to happen for sure. Like a CIO is going to use a tool like business process mining, go right back down the line and see exactly the tool or the step in the process that's not working for customers. They're going to look at whatever tech product is there, and they're going to rip it out. Yeah. If it sucks, it's going to get ripped out. <laughs> it can't stay there. <laughs> like, it, it used to be like, if you think back to like internal IT, people complain like, oh, my computer's slow. My computer doesn't print. You know what I mean? Like, it's the one IT guy that no one wants to talk to that sticks in the back of the corner. Like, that's how it was portrayed on Saturday Night Live, right? Saturday Night Live, you got the copy guy. He just sits around the copy machine talking about making copies. That's gone. Like, if, I think that's going to go away. I mean, if there's a problem in your workflow that you can't do something fast and efficiently, it just, for a company that cares and doesn't have a monopoly, they're going to care very much to solve that. Well, yeah. And that, that was going to be my takeaway number three, is that legacy technology is a albatross. It is the, the 500 pound gorilla in every organization. And now you have the clunkiness of legacy technology you actually feel at the seams, right? And you feel, your company feels different yeah. when you're on old stuff. And back in the day, you could, you know, get on with the technology and be on there for, you know, 10, 20 years and you kind of made that investment and you knew that you were making your bed. And now the speed is so much faster and the expectation of the end user is so much better. We all have you know, iPhones or Androids or whatever it is that are extremely fast. We have all these applications. You know, you can buy a MacBook Air for like 999 bucks. Like everybody's going to have, they have cutting edge tools and they have all of these consumer apps and they have all of these, um, you know, bottom up apps. And all of those things lead to the fact that those are all somewhere there's a product person, person focused on trying to make that you know, that customer experience seamless. And so if you have legacy technology at your company, it is something that is extremely difficult to deal with. And I think my, my position on this is that it's similar to like modular technology for, uh, for building houses that are building buildings that, you know, if the hospital of the past was, you know, a 500 room building that you build and then you have for 60 years and then it decays, and the modern hospital of the future is, you know, 500 single modular rooms that can shift and change and you can change location and all of those sort of things. Uh, I think that that technology investments are going to be in a similar sort of way. And now, you know, you're going to look at, you know, the ripping costs and you're looking at it, you know, with the back of your mind, knowing that like, 
you know, if I only have 24 months at this company, you know, I can make investments in technology. You know, hopefully I'm here longer. But if I can make investments in technology that can get us through, you know, the next three to five years, and that if we want to quit it, are really easy to quit and to pivot, like that's a lot better. I'll, I'll take a B product that I can quit than an A product that I can't. And I think that that shift in thinking and the shift in the speed of technology has made that legacy conversation extremely complex. Well, it's also being proven right out and right before our eyes in use cases, right? Zoom is arguably the best one. Like, what value did Zoom bring? Well, pre-pandemic, people were like, I don't know, you know, it's just another web conferencing tool. Is my web conferencing good enough? Right? Kind of like what you said. I mean, let's say I'm in a long, arduous contract with someone that's just good enough. Well, Zoom proved that if you had a tool that was easy to install, easy to distribute, and materially worked better than the existing product. So material in this case, meaning like, does the connection stay up? Does it stay clear? You know, there's tons of memes and jokes about web conferencing and conferencing tools. I think you guys remember the days of conference calls when you dialed the pin, like half the time the pin didn't read or the number didn't dial. It's like, why can't we talk to each other? It seemed like a seemed like an act of like, I don't know, it's like seeing moving mountains. Well, Zoom proved that if you can focus all your energy on how to make it easier to install and utilize for the user base. So like you talked about Ian just a moment ago, like ripability. Well, that's how you rip something else out is because you can replace it so fast, right? So you're going to see that use case continue to happen. I think you're going to see a new wave. I believe you're going to see a new wave of tech companies that literally are born from the existing companies, people that work somewhere right now, experiencing some god-awful pain, no different from the guys from Box when those came to file sharing movies. They're going to just say like, oh my gosh, this, this is how you solve this problem. And the new CIOs or CTOs that get presented these technologies are going to be able to flip out their legacy product because by making it easier to adopt, install, implement, utilize, and increase its reliability, you've now shortened their pain, the pain of training and onboarding new employees, right? That's what you're talking about, the replacement costs. These new companies are going to be able to convince these other guys, like the existing owners of incumbent technology, legacy technology, if they can convince them that this is going to be significantly easier to pull out, this is what you're going to start seeing. You're going to start seeing old stuff get tossed because the focus of the new tech leader is completely on, I think, the replace aspect that you're talking about. They're trying to make it so much easier to implement technology. Well, and you know who knew the, you know, who saw the Zoom thing coming? The three CIOs that we had in a CIO roundtable, uh, you know, about 195 episodes ago because <laughs> all of them sat there and told me, and I was like, I don't get it. It's like, I don't get this thing. I'm like, it's not that good. Like, it's really not. Like, to me, it's just really not that good. And this was, you know, this is a while ago. It was two years ago. And, uh, and they were like, Ian, you don't get it because as a CIO who needs to manage, you know, X number of employees, this is perfect for us. Like, this like Zoom is perfect because we can monitor all of the employees' licenses and we can figure out who exactly has what and how are they using it and all these things. And it gives us a solution that is, you know, extremely easy to implement and learn. And like, I think that that's, you know, the COVID thing obviously accelerated Zoom and like, you know, we've been using Zoom for our podcast interviews for, for two years now. And so, you know, we're a longtime user of the product. 
but I didn't understand. I understood that like, okay, this is a little bit better than, you know, what's out there from a consumer perspective, but for a leader perspective, it was amazing. And and I think that that just speaks to the larger play. And then so, you know, if you have a product suite like Salesforce, like our amazing, you know, customer and sponsor of the show Salesforce, and you're a Salesforce customer, and now you can leverage some of these other partnerships and you can leverage, you know, the the suite of products that that a platform like Salesforce has. And then you can, you know, drop in Zoom, you can, you know, drop in a few other things. You're in a great place as a technology leader to understand and to have data and have a real understanding of how your employees are working. And then also have an understanding of how your customers' experience is going. And like that sort of stuff is so valuable. And again, it's going to be the new normal because you have to have, you know, data, you have to have, you know, user centric technology. Otherwise, it's just going to be too hard. It's going to be a, a, an uphill battle, and um, you know if you're if you're a company that has like a bunch of legacy tech, you know that's super old stuff that's really clunky, and employees don't really want to work there. You're also not really going to get the best IT talent because who wants to go just like work on project after project? And it, it reminds me of one of the episodes that we had on where we had Bob from Juniper Networks talk about how he had a, I think it was a two hundred and like something two hundred and whatever piece checklist that they were going to go to. 100% cloud. And that was their that was their journey, right? So you're talking about those type of, you know, the true IT visionary that's like, "Hey, we're taking this company and we're going to go 100% cloud native." Like that's a bold you have to be a you have to, you know, really put all your cards on the table to your leadership team and say, "Hey, this is going to be a massive undertaking investment." And he said they just took them you know, over the years, just checking off all the all the tasks that they had to do to be 100%. At the end of it, I think it was a seven-year journey at the end of it, like, bam, they were now fast, they were flexible, they didn't have to deal with that legacy stuff, and now they were able to adapt. Yeah. And to play devil's, a little devil's advocate, I think the one thing that legacy technology does have going for it, though, however, is like the labor market, basically. So if your business can function. You know how in startups, they always talk about how you need A players. You reference Jason Lemkin a lot. Like Lemkin always talks about A players. If you can have A players, right? Reed Hastings. If you have an A minus player and you can find an A plus player, give that A minus player a severance package and go hire A plus, right? There's always this push for the best. I don't question that. That's absolutely a good mantra. But there's also a lot of companies out there that I think they're okay with B players. And so they're going to let the labor market and the fact that there's not enough jobs right now, potentially, to allow themselves to have people that probably aren't that good. I, I do believe that. Not in IT. I'm telling you, man, I think so. Like the, even like some of these older companies, like they were like, eh, we're okay with just doing that. I mean, maybe not on the web development side. I don't think on the web development side, but like maintenance. I wonder if there's like some monolithic companies that are just like, yeah, I'm cool with what I got. <laughs> yeah, but not, I mean, you, there's probably a hundred thousand, you know, IT and, and, uh, Security uh, and developer jobs, you know, over the next how whatever the the timeline is, that are going to be unfilled. There's always going to be a shortage for talent in, in technology until the market corrects, and uh, there's nowhere that our educational system is cranking out enough technology talent. So here, here's what's interesting though. What about as we proliferate remote learning? Do people even live need to live in the United States anymore? Right. So. Arguably, if that's the case, then the talent pool has exploded. Your access to talent, right? Kids in the Philippines, kids in India, kids in China that are superstar at their 
discipline or field. Those potentially in the past, you needed to get work visas for them. Do you need those anymore? Doesn't seem like it. Meaning visas, like you can actually hire them now if you represent yourself in that, that country or state. So like, I don't know, there's, there's always something that is surprising, right? Because like as fast as technology catches on, isn't it also surprising to see how slow people are to adopt it sometimes? Because like, I, I'm, I'm not trying to call out my cable company because I don't use cable anymore, but uh, the, the, whatever system they're on, it's terrible. Because every time I, if you ever had to call, you know, <laughs> you get the, hey, my computer just fell out where I don't have the information or anyone who's using those dial systems where you have to type in your account number and then you get to somebody and they ask you to repeat it and they clearly aren't even verifying it. Like they don't have it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, the globalization stuff is definitely going to be TBD on, you know, how that all changes. I, I think it's definitely inevitable, but I don't think that that's going to change, you know, a ton in the next five years. I think there's still going to be a massive shortage. Yeah. And uh, there's still going to be a massive shortage in technology leaders because, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, there's only so much, you know, on a, on an input basis and you need managers and you need directors and you need people that can do that. And just based off of some of the salaries that are going around for those folks, uh, clearly it is a, uh, an in-demand, uh, in-demand position. No doubt. The kind of final thing that I'll say, and I think that the talent piece is maybe, um, you know, a, a, a bonus takeaway here that, you know, talent is going to change a ton you know, remote work. We have no idea how many people are going to go back to work or not. So, you know, who knows what happens there. But I would say that the final piece that I would say um, for a takeaway from the last 200 episodes is that there is a changing of the guard when it comes to the way senior leaders in technology are seen and can be seen and it kind of is an encapsulation of all the different things that we said. You can be closer to innovation. You can be closer to the customer. You can be closer to the employee. I think the, the explosion of data is going to finally give you know, technology leaders like real insights on and like ammo to go back to you know, the board when making different investments or saying like, hey, this actually does help and it doesn't. And I think that, you know, the CIOs of the future are, are going to be the, you know, the person with, um, you know, with the nice car that everybody wants to borrow <laughs> because of the fact that they're, they're just so close to technology and because of their proximity to security, because of their proximity to, to data and because of their proximity to employees and customers. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. I don't know for all CIOs, like if, if for a lot of CIOs, I know they work almost exclusively on internal projects, but like for CTOs, like they're effectively the top sales rep, right? CTOs of like a tech company that sells direct consumer product or whatever, they are the top sales rep, right? The product generally drives the sale. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like those people are going to be very close to customer relationship, P&Ls, like they're going to be asked. I mean, you can see it coming, right? Where, you know, in the past, let's say you were in retail, you would get asked, hey, if you change the store, how much sales per unit does that create? And the CEO makes a decision. Do we merchandise it like that or not? Now, any tech-driven product is going to be, they're going to ask the CTO that question. They're going to be like, hey, you changed the color of the button. How much revenue did it generate? Huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do we bring that to all of our products? That's absolutely going to be true. Because the levers they pull are going to be directly tied to money. Well, Albert, that's it. 
that's all we've got for today. Uh, so excited to, uh, to have you hosting the show now and to, uh, to be now I'm, now I'm going to be a listener and be following along. You have some awesome guests coming up f- from some really cool companies, you know, companies like Blue Apron and Intel and Sprinkler and, and on and on. And uh, yeah, it's going to be excited to, uh, to keep listening to the show and, uh, and see it go to, uh, to new heights here. The way I think of it is I'm excited. Like I mentioned before earlier in the show, I'm excited and nervous to do the show. Uh, nervous because it's not really my natural forte, but I'm also excited uh, to, like I said, to learn all the different things that people are up to and hopefully ask the right questions for the audience so that they can learn the same things as well. Thanks to all of the listeners you know, over the past couple of years. It's been an awesome journey for me and for all of our team uh, here and uh, excited to, uh, to see where IT Visionary goes next. Yeah, onward. Take care, buddy. Take care, everyone. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.